Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Famous Personalities. We've studied scientists who were involved in chemistry, physics, and mathematics so far, with Marie Curie and the elements she discovered and worked on, Katherine Johnson with her work at NASA, Mary Jackson and her work in engineering, and Dorothy Vaughn's work as a programmer. This time, however, we'll be exploring the life of a scientist who worked on both physical chemistry and biophysics. This episode aims to bring honor to Rosalind Franklin, a phenomenally talented crystallographer who no one knew of until after her death. So please be ready for a hopefully wonderful tribute. Before starting, I'd like to tell everyone a little bit about what scientist Rosalind Franklin is famous for. Most people know Rosalind Franklin for her work regarding DNA. When her name is heard, the most memorable reference is that of her X-ray photos that she took, and her graduate student Raymond Gosling's photo 51. This was not her first accomplishment, nor was it her last. In fact, if she had lived long enough, she may have actually received two Nobel Prizes, but as she died of ovarian cancer, she did not have the opportunity as the Nobel Prize could not be received posthumously. More than prizes and honors, Rosalind had many buildings and awards named after her as well. Rosalind Franklin received many awards and honors beyond her lifetime. In 1982, Iota Sigma Pi designated Franklin as an honorary national member. In 1984, St. Paul's Girls School established the Rosalind Franklin Technology Center. In 1992, English Heritage placed a blue plaque commemorating Franklin on the building in Drayton Gardens, London, where she lived until her death. And in 1997, a newly discovered asteroid was named 9241 Ros Franklin. Early Life Rosalind Franklin was born on July 25, 1920, in 50 Chepstow Villas, Notting Hill, London, into an affluent and influential British Jewish family. Her family was an old one, and a member of her family traced their lineage back to King David and up through generations of English and Eastern European Jews. Franklin's father was Ellis Arthur Franklin, a politically liberal London merchant banker who taught at the city's working men's college and her mother was Muriel Frances Whaley. Alice Franklin planned on studying science at Oxford, but after finishing his service as a captain in the infantry regiment during World War I, he married and began a career in banking, working at the Kaiser Bank, where his father was senior partner. Muriel Franklin, Rosalind's mother, had aspirations for a university education, but they had been thwarted by her mother's objections. However, she found an outlet for her intellect and skills in charity work. Rosalind was the elder daughter and the second child in the family of five children. David was the eldest brother, Colin, Roland, and Jennifer were her younger siblings. The Franklin family was incredibly devoted to the Jewish faith, and Rosalind's grandfather, Arthur Ellis Franklin, expected all of his descendants to be similarly faithful. Their family was also actively involved in giving back to the community, as they had believed with their wealth, their family was quite wealthy, came a responsibility to give back to the community. The family was involved with the Working Men's College, 
where Rosalind's father taught the subjects of electricity, magnetism, and the history of the Great War in the evenings, later becoming the vice principal. In addition, Franklin's parents helped settle Jewish refugees from Europe who had escaped the Nazis, particularly those from the kinder transport. They took in two Jewish children to their home, and one of them shared Jennifer's room. From early childhood, Franklin showed exceptional scholastic abilities. At age six, she joined her brother Roland at the Norland Place School, a private day school in West London, and often did math for fun. She also developed an early interest in cricket and hockey. At age nine, she entered a boarding school, Lindor School for Young Ladies in Sussex. The school was near the seaside, and the family wanted a good environment for her delicate health. She had suffered from an infection when she was quite young, and it left her weak and susceptible to further complications. So to help her recuperate, her parents sent her to the boarding school. However, the academics were so rigorous that there was no question of whether Rosalind was thriving at the school. Finally, in the summer of 1931, Rosalind was deemed cured of her disease and was brought back home. She was 11 when she went to St. Paul's Girls' School in Hammersmith, West London, one of the few girls' schools in London that taught physics and chemistry. At St. Paul's, she excelled in science, Latin, and sports. She also learned German and became fluent in French, a language she would later find useful. She topped her classes and won annual awards. Her only educational weakness was in music, for which the school music director, the composer Gustav Holst, once called upon her mother to inquire whether she might have suffered from hearing problems or tonsillitis. With six distinctions, she passed her matriculation in 1938, winning a scholarship for university, the school-leaving exhibition of £30 a year for three years, and £5 from her grandfather. Her father asked her to give the money to a deserving refugee student. Rosalind had taken the entrance examinations at Cambridge in physics and chemistry when she was 17, and though she was worried that she had not done well, she placed first in the chemistry exam and was offered admission to both Gurdon and Newnham Colleges, the two women's colleges at Cambridge University. She decided on Newnham after receiving input from several people. She could have stayed at St. Paul's for another year, as she would have been among the youngest of the students at Newnham, but she chose to start earlier. Franklin went to Newnham College, Cambridge, in 1938 and studied chemistry within the natural science triples. At first, she was quite behind as the St. Paul's science program did not prepare her enough for Newnham's. But after taking the final exam for her first year, she won first place, her fears of not doing well exaggerated. After her first year, Rosalind's full family went on a summer holiday to Norway, one that was cut short due to the threat of a German invasion. Indeed, the fact that World War II was simultaneously beginning meant that England was preparing for war, taking measures such as building public bomb shelters, digging trenches, and constructing air raid shelters. Franklin's father did accept her decision to pursue science as a career, but he wanted her to join the Land Army, a women's group that worked in agriculture to help contribute to the war effort. Rosalind, as well as her mother and aunt, defied Alice Franklin. 
The aspiring researcher told him that she planned to contribute to the war effort through her work as a scientist, where she would be far more useful than an agricultural laborer. Due to the fact that many researchers were leaving the university to take positions directly involved in war research, Cambridge even began hiring its first female professors in the university's 700-year history. One such lecturer was a French scientist who had fled France during the Nazi occupation named Adrian Weil, who was a former pupil of Marie Curie. Rosalind attended a lecture given by Weil and immediately liked her. Rosalind also took conversational French lessons from her and became good friends with the scientist. As graduation neared, Franklin decided that she did not want to work in the science industry only to do science for money. She wanted to contribute to the war effort and get her doctorate degree. However, first, she needed to take her final exams. She was nervous and exhausted from overstudying, and when she finally took them, she was overwrought and groggy and tired from medicine she was taking for a head cold, thus not doing as well as she could have because she did not complete all the questions. She thought that this had destroyed any hopes for a government research grant or a student scholarship for graduate work, but actually, she did not do as badly as she had feared. Earning a top score in her physical chemistry exam and a second in the other part of the exam, she was offered a scholarship at Newnham and a research grant to stay another year with her supervisor's recommendation. Adult Life Rosalind Franklin began her graduate research under the physical chemist Ronald George Rayford Norrish. Norrish assigned Franklin work she was not entirely thrilled about, as it didn't directly involve the war, which bothered her, as nearby labs were studying items more directly related to defeating Hitler. Rosalind's assigned work was the polymerization of formic acid and acetaldehyde. Her father did really want Rosalind to enlist in the army, but when Newnham awarded Rosalind a fourth-year scholarship, she was spared military service and could remain at the university. She also moved to a rented room on Mill Road, which was a working-class area that cost 45 shillings a week, heating excluded. In 1942, Franklin visited Adrian Weil and the people who lived at her new boarding house. She enjoyed being in the company of the French refugees who lived there, as their quick-witted and lively conversations made her enjoy being there. She wanted to move to Madame Wilde's place, and so she did. That summer, she moved to 12 Mill Lane and continued to enjoy her living arrangements, one part of her life. Her research under Norrish, however, was as dissatisfying as ever. Though Norrish had expected Franklin's experiment to yield certain results, she found that it was impossible and wrote up a report detailing the flaws and problems. Norrish ignored this and directed her to redo the experiments, which Rosalind did not agree to. She stood up for herself, and in her own words, they had a first-class role. She did not like the air of superiority that Norrish carried and decided to be impervious to whatever he said to her in the future. As Rosalind's research grant was about to run out, she needed to consider her options for where she wanted to work next. If she left Cambridge, then she would have to risk being drafted into the army, something she did not want. However, luck was on her side, 
and she was offered a job at a government laboratory called the British Coal Utilization Research Association, which was shortened to BCURA, and it was pronounced as Bukira by those who worked there. It was quite off-grid, and it was rather far from the city, but it was war-related scientific work, and that was what mattered the most. She began her job as an assistant research officer at Bikura, which had only been established four years earlier. Franklin's task at Bikura was to discover the reason for why some types of coal were more resistant to gas or water penetration than others, passing helium at different temperatures through coal samples and me- measuring their porosity. By concluding that substances were expelled in order of molecular size as temperature increased, she helped classify coals and accurately predict their performance for fuel purposes and for production of wartime devices such as gas masks. Franklin performed groundbreaking research from 1942 to 1946, published five research papers, and earned her PhD in 1945 based on her Bakura research. Because she moved to Bikura, she moved out of Madame Wilde's home and into a larger house in Putney that belonged to her aunt and uncle, but was occupied by her cousin Irene and a friend. She and Irene volunteered as air raid wardens and fearlessly helped people to shelters during air raids and got medical help for the wounded if a bond was dropped. When Irene left Putney to get married and her aunt and uncle returned to their home, Rosalyn moved back to her parents' home and and traveled to work. Rosalyn enjoyed hiking and climbing vacations as much as ever and grew more self-assured after her success at Bikura. However, as the war drew to a close, she became bored with Bikura and wanted a change. She considered her options, leaving Cambridge and Norwich out of the question. She had a PhD in physical chemistry, though she knew very little about it, but knows a lot about holes in coal, and her future was bright. But it was cloudy and not foreseeable at the time. In the fall of 1946, Rosalind presented a paper on her coal research at a conference at the Royal Institution in London. Her forceful and self-assured attitude caught the eye of two French scientists who were friends of Madame Weil, Marcel Mathieu and Jacques Marink. Mathieu was an important person in the branch of the French government that funded a large part of the scientific research conducted in the country, and Franklin's proficiency in French assured him that she would be able to work there. Within a month, he offered her a job as a physical chemist working on coal research in a Paris laboratory, an offer she gladly accepted. In February of 1947, Franklin Woods moved to Paris to begin her job with the Central State Chemistry Laboratories. Her mentor was Jacques Marig, one of the two people she had met at the conference the previous year. She worked in a government laboratory conducting true research without any objective to earn money, something she had wanted to do since she was at St. Paul's. The staff included 14 other researchers and six technicians, all of them under Marin's supervision. In Paris, there was a lot more equality than in London, and women and men enjoyed equal liberties. Rosalind loved the lively debates held after work and enjoyed the fast-paced conversations. She lived in an inexpensive room along the left left bank of the Seine River. Though Franklin's salary was modest, her rent was only one-third of it, and she could walk, bicycle, or take the bus to work. 
The laboratory was in an old but charming building that was large and airy, and Franklin's colleagues were young and sociable. They were quite good friends with each other and took trips together as well. Rosalind especially became good friends with two couples, Vittorio and Denise Lozati, and David and Anne Sayer, and they kept in good touch for several years after. She also learned an incredibly important skill, X-ray crystallography, at the laboratory. X-ray crystallography is also called X-ray diffraction. X-ray diffraction is based on atoms. As atoms are too small to see under microscopes, another method must be used to observe compounds at the molecular levels. When X-rays are shot at atomic structures of matter in its crystalline form, the X-rays diffract or bounce off onto the film, and analyzing the pattern that the diffraction makes allows scientists to uncover the form and structure of molecules. Franklin quickly mastered X-ray crystallography techniques and used them to explore the molecular structure of a number of carbon-based substances. Interpreting the patterns was quite difficult as there were no computers in Rosalind's time, and calculations had to be done by hand. However, this didn't deter Rosalind. She was one of the first to research what happens when carbon is turned into graphite. She discovered that not all carbons could be converted into graphite through high temperatures, and the ones that could were soft and non-porous, called graphitizing carbons, while the non-graphitizing carbons, called vitreous carbons, were hard with low density, and they could, be used, they could be made into solid shapes that resisted high temperatures and corrosion, having much industrial uses. She also published seven scientific papers during her time at Paris. Learning a great deal from Jacques Mering, her professional reputation grew and she was asked to speak at scientific conferences. She became one of the world's leading X-ray diffraction specialists. By the end of the war in 1945, scientists who were focused on war-related work were free to pursue other fields of research. One field that specifically interested Rosalind was biophysics. With the end of the war also came Rosalind's need for a change. Though she loved her time in Paris, she knew she would have to return to London, as she was a foreigner working for the French government. Searching for a job proved more tricky than she thought. She applied to Birkbeck College to work under the crystallographer J.D. Bernal, but did not get the position. She considered the royal institution, but working under Norrish put her off so much that she ruled it out. Deciding that she would have better opportunities after more of her papers were published, she began publishing more of her papers. When her ninth paper, The Interpretation of Diffuse X-ray Diagrams of Carbon, was published, she was disappointed that Jacques Mering refused to have his name published as co-author, even though it was a joint effort, and this was because he was angry she was planning to go back to London. After another one of her papers was accepted for publication in the highly respected journal Nature, she realized, she realized the timing was right to return to London, even though she had mixed feelings about leaving Paris. In 1950, Franklin was granted a three-year Turner and Newell Fellowship to work at King's College London after an interview. The biophysics unit at King's College was headed by John Randall, who recognized the importance of encouraging links between the branches of biology. 
He was also the director of the Biophysics Research Unit by the Medical Research Council, which funded the biology research relating to medicine. Rosalind requested a one-year postponement so she could begin working in the fall of 1951. Originally, Franklin was assigned to work on x-ray diffraction of proteins and lipids in solution, but Randall redirected her work to DNA fibers, as this was a new topic that had arisen and was attractive to every researcher. Especially as her skills in x-ray diffraction were highly sought after, Rosalind had a huge advantage that she would use to help eventually discover the structure of DNA. Prior attempts to find the structure using crystallography had failed or yielded poor results, but it was still incredibly exciting. Rosalind moved back with her parents temporarily as she was unable to find an apartment initially, but at the very least, she did not have to move back into her childhood room because her parents had sold their home, which was larger, a while ago. Professor Randall wanted Rosalind to switch to working on DNA research, and his letter also included the fact that two others who had worked on DNA X-ray work, Maurice Wilkins and Alex Stokes, were being moved to other tasks. This meant that Rosalind was in charge of the X-ray crystallography work at King's, and she would have Raymond Gosling, Wilkins' graduate student, report to her instead. However, Randall purposely didn't inform Franklin of Wilkins' active and successful participation in DNA research. He knew that Wilkins was unlikely to give up DNA work on his own, so he planned to maneuver Wilkins to other research and have Franklin report directly to him, so Randall would have more of a hand in her research. Therefore, Rosalind would build an X-ray crystallography unit and supervise all X-ray DNA work at King's as soon as she finished up a few cold papers that needed finishing. Wilkins had no idea that he was no longer supposed to be working on DNA work. In fact, he had been led to believe that Rosalind was to be his assistant and hadn't a clue of how respected she was or what Randall had told her. Therefore, their relationship was brittle and not at all built on a two-way understanding, and they had a strong personality conflict. Franklin, now working with Gosling as her graduate student, started to work on identifying the structure of DNA using her expertise in X-ray diffraction. She used a new fine-focus X-ray tube and micro-camera given to Wilkins and Gosling by an inventor, Werner Ehrenberg, before she had arrived at King's which she refined, adjusted, and focused carefully over the course of eight months. Once it was completely assembled, Gosling and Franklin began to examine a very good set of DNA fibers that were given to King's College at a conference in Switzerland by Professor Rudolf Signer. In the meantime, Professor Randall had asked Wilkins to attend a conference in Naples and speak about large molecules. He gave a lecture on DNA and nucleic acid, and explained to the audience why King's was focusing on that. He also showed the sharpest image of a DNA molecule that any of the scientists attending the lecture had ever seen. In July, he spoke at another conference at the Cavendish Laboratory, and by this point had found DNA in different species to essentially have the same structure, even though protein structure was different in every species. The central X structure in the diffraction photos was a strong indication of a helical shape as well. 
Wilkins' presentation was appreciated by everyone in the audience, and he felt satisfied with the success of his presentation. Therefore, when Roslyn told him to go back to his microscopes, he was visibly shaken because he didn't realize that he was not supposed to be continuing DNA work. Another encounter between Franklin and Wilkins occurred in September after Wilkins had learned of an exhilarating discovery from the biochemist Erwin Chargaff in the United States. By this time, scientists knew that DNA was composed of a string of nucleotides, each, containing of a, each consisting of a sugar, deoxyribose, a phosphate, and one of the four nitrogenous bases, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Chargaff discovered that adenine and thymine always appeared in the same amount in DNA, and similarly for guanine and cytosine. This discovery implied a, cri- a critical portion of DNA structure, but neither Wilkins nor Chargaff realized this. However, while Wilkins tried to tell Rosalind of the discovery, she interrupted him and told him about her new results regarding the A and B forms of DNA. The A form had a more complicated pattern, and it was dry, compact, and crystalline. The B form was humid and much simpler to analyze. The A and B forms looked very different from each other, and Franklin also told Wilkins that Raymond Gosling and she had Raymond Gosling and he had made an error in earlier research because the samples were not as wet as they thought. She also learned that without water, the DNA frames coiled and crystallized, as seen in the A form. And when the humidity was increased, the fibers would lengthen back into the B form. From this, Rosan concluded that the phosphate groups must be on the outside. Phosphate groups tend to soak up water easily, and the ease with which the DNA fibers did so allowed Roslyn to conclude that the phosphate groups made up the backbone of the DNA. She presented her findings at a seminar in November 1951 at King's. Franklin, by this point, had discovered that there were two forms of DNA, A form, which was dry, crystalline, and compact, and B form, which was longer and thinner. Because of the intense personality conflict developing between Franklin and Wilkins, Randall divided the work on DNA. Franklin chose the data-rich A form, while Wilkins selected the B form. Because, according to his autobiography, Wilkins' preliminary pictures had hinted that it might be helical. The X-ray diffraction pictures, including the landmark photo 51 taken by Franklin's student Gosling at the time, have been called by J.D. Bernal as among the most beautiful X-ray photographs of any substance ever taken. By January 1953, Franklin had started to write a series of three draft manuscripts, two of which included a double helical DNA backbone. Her two A-DNA manuscripts reached Acta Crystallographica in Copenhagen on 6 March 1953, one day before Crick and Watson had completed their model on B-DNA. She must have mailed them while the Cambridge team was building their model, and certainly had written them before she knew of their work. On 8 July 1953, she modified one of these in Proof Acta articles in light of recent work by the King's and Cambridge research teams. The third draft paper was on the B form of DNA, dated 17 March 1953, which was discovered years later amongst her papers, 
by Franklin's Birkbeck colleague, Aaron Klug. He then published an evaluation of the draft's close correlation with the third of the original trio of 25th April 1953 Nature DNA articles. Klug designed this paper to complement the first article he had written defending Franklin's significant contribution to DNA structure. He had written this first article in response to the incomplete picture of Franklin's work, depicted in Watson's 1968 memoir, The Double Helix. As vividly described in The Double Helix, on 30 January 1953, James Watson traveled to King's carrying a preprint preprint of Linus Pauling's incorrect proposal for DNA structure. Since Wilkins was not in his office, Watson went to Franklin's lab with his urgent message that they should all collaborate before Pauling discovered his error. The unimpressed Franklin became angry when Watson suggested she did not know how to interpret her own data. Watson hastily retreated, backing into Wilkins, who had been attracted by the commotion. Wilkins commiserated with his harried friend, and then showed Watson Franklin's DNA X-ray image. Watson, in turn, showed Wilkins a pre-publication manuscript by Pauling and Robert Corey, which contained a DNA structure remarkably like their first incorrect model. Rosalind, in 1953, transferred to Birkbeck College. Franklin's research was completed by February 1953, ahead of her move to Birkbeck, and her data was critical in identifying the structure of DNA. Since Franklin had decided to transfer to Birkbeck College, and Randall had insisted that all DNA work must stay at King's, Wilkins was given copies of Franklin's diffraction photographs by Gosling. Franklin left King's College, London, in mid-March 1953, in a move that had been planned for some time and she described in a letter to Adrian Weil in Paris as moving from a palace to the slums, but pleasanter all the same. She was taken under the wing of physics department chair J.D. Bernal, a crystallographer who was a communist, known for promoting women crystallographers. Rosalind's new laboratories were located at 21 Torrington Square, one of a pair of dilapidated and cramped Georgian houses containing several different departments. J.D. Bernal had told her to discontinue her interest in DNA, but despite this, Rosalind helped Raymond Gosling finish his thesis on the first evidence of a DNA structure, even though she technically was no longer supposed to supervise him. At the end of 1954, Bernal secured funding for Franklin from the Agricultural Research Council, ARC, which enabled her to work as a senior scientist supervising her own research group. John Finch, a a physics student from King's College London, subsequently joined Franklin's group, followed by Kenneth Holmes, a Cambridge graduate, in in July 1955. Despite the ARC funding, Franklin wrote to Bernal that the existing facilities remained highly unsuited for conducting research. She wrote, My desk and lab are on the fourth floor, my x-ray tube in the basement, and I am responsible for the work of four people distributed over the basement, first and second floors, on two different staircases. Though Rosalind no longer worked on DNA, this did not prohibit her from exploring RNA. She again used X-ray crystallography to study the structure of tobacco mosaic virus, TMV, and RNA virus. 
She also met Aaron Klug in early 1954. Klug had just then earned his PhD from Trinity College, Cambridge, and joined Birkbeck in late 1953. In 1955, Franklin published her first major works on TMV in Nature, in which she described that all TMV virus particles were of the same length. From 1956, Rosalind's team published monumental works on different RNA viruses, including different mosaic viruses as well. In 1957, her research grant from ARC expired and was given a one-year extension ending in March 1958. In 1957, Rosalind was invited to build a 5-foot model of tobacco mosaic virus for Expo 58, also known as the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, to be held in Brussels, Belgium. The Brussels World Fair, with an exhibit of her virus model at the International Science Pavilion, opened on 17th April, one day after she died. In 1956, Franklin visited the University of California, Berkeley, where colleagues had suggested that her group research the polio virus. Intrigued, Rosalind applied for a £10,000 grant for three years from the United States Public Health Service of the National Institutes of Health, more commonly known as the NIH, in 1957 and received the grant. This was the largest grant to ever be received at Birkbeck. However, as Franklin intended to work with live polio virus instead of killed, this raised concerns, which Bernal solved by suggesting that the virus be safely stored at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine during the group's research. With her group, Franklin then commenced deciphering the structure of the polio virus while it was in a crystalline state. She attempted to mount the virus crystals in capillary tubes for X-ray studies, but was forced to end her work due to her rapidly failing health. In mid-1956, while on a work-related trip to the United States, one in which she had been given the idea to study polio, Franklin first began to suspect a health problem. While in New York, she found difficulty in zipping her skirt. Her stomach had bulged and there were sharp pains in her abdomen. Her case was marked urgent, and an operation on 4th September of the same year revealed two tumors in her abdomen. After this period and other periods of hospitalization, Franklin spent time convalescing with several friends and family members. Even while undergoing cancer treatment, Franklin continued to work, and her group continued to produce results, seven papers in 1956 and six more in 1957. At the end of 1957, Franklin fell ill again and was admitted to the Royal Marston Hospital. On the 2nd of December, she made her will. She returned to work in January 1958 and also was given a promotion to research associate in biophysics on 25th February. She fell ill again on 30th March and she died on April 16, 1958 in Chelsea, London, of bronchopneumonia, secondary secondary carcinomatosis, and ovarian cancer. Her legacy will continue to live on forever. The Impact of Rosalind's Work Many people accredit Rosalind to only DNA research, as her DNA research is her most well-known work. However, 
Her most significant work came either before or after her time at King's College London. Her coal work as well as her work on viruses are easily as or more important than her X-ray diffraction photos of DNA. In addition, besides the monumental amount of scientific research Franklin completed, she inspired several, several other people to speak up about the injustice in the scientific industry and life in general. Many biographers have also written about Rosalind's life and described how she left a lasting legacy in science. It's possible much we know today about coal, viruses, and even DNA would not have been discovered without the help of Rosalind's work. Fun Fact a fun fact about Rosalind Franklin is that she has an asteroid and a rover named after her. In 1997, a newly discovered asteroid was named 9241 Ros Franklin. An amateur Australian astronomer named John Broden discovered an asteroid at the Reedy Creek Observatory in Queensland, Australia. He named his discovery the 9241 Ros Franklin in tribute to Franklin. The asteroid is a main belt asteroid, meaning that it occupies the region of the solar system located roughly between the orbits of the planets Mars and Jupiter. In addition, in 2019, the European Space Agency ESA, renamed its ExoMars rover Rosalind Franklin in honor of Rosalind. Quote, My method of thought and reasoning is influenced by a scientific training. If that were not so, my scientific training would have been a waste and a failure. Rosalind Franklin Thank you so much for listening to the sixth episode in our series Famous Personalities. This episode was about Rosalind Franklin, a talented X-ray crystallographer who put her skills to great use and scientific progress. This is Shri Priya signing off. See you next time!